By these, please, lads. Yep, yeah, course. Uh, one second. There you go. There's mine. Ealing Trail Finders and uh, Doncaster Knights. Nah, sorry, lads. Can't let you in. Sorry, what? Why? No trainers allowed. I'm not wearing trainers. Yeah, me neither. Uh, no scrum caps. You can't be serious. Look, fellas, tonight's not your night. Go try somewhere else. What? I'm top of the championship? Yeah, and I've been in the top three practically all season. And came second to Sarri's last season. Look, fellas, if your stadium is under 10,001 capacity, I can't let you in. You're joking. What? Look, lads, you've both not met the minimum standards criteria for promotion. What's that? Do you really want me to spell it out for you? I think we deserve an explanation at least. The COVID recovery measures agreed by the RFU Council in June last year allowed for the Gallagher Premiership to be expanded to 14 clubs at the end of 2021-22 season, enabling the winner of the championship to be promoted subject to meeting the required minimum standards criteria. Minimum standards criteria are in place to ensure Premiership rugby clubs and promoted clubs have suitable facilities to protect player safety and welfare and to provide a good quality safe environment for spectators. Each club and its nominated ground undergo an annual independent audit to assess compliance within the minimum standards criteria. All championship clubs know the minimum standards criteria. These standards have been in place for over 20 years. One of the minimum standards criteria is that the stadium must hold a minimum of 10,001 fans. This ensures the ground forms under the remit of the SGSA regulated by the DCMS and the Green Guide, as well as to be of a standard suitable for the top league of one of the nation's major sports. Ealing Trailfinders does not currently have a licence capacity, but the ground holds approximately 5,000 with 2,115 seats. Doncaster Knights currently has a capacity of around 5,183 with 1,926 seats. Therefore, neither club is eligible for promotion to the Gallagher Premiership. But we literally just hosted England under-20s against Wales. Oh yeah, top quality facilities, but not enough plastic seats. Really? Can we appeal? Yeah, but not really much point. Amazing. Come on, let's go. Right, see you in 15 years time, fellas. Thanks so much for listening. It was as if he kicked about three pounds of haggis that time because it hardly got off the ground. Welcome back to the Pop Pass podcast, where Charlie and I are talking all things rugby, from the international stage right the way down to grassroots. And we'll always try to throw in a few stats that you can impress your friends with along the way. As you know, we're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so if you've enjoyed listening to our ramblings, our analysis, and our dodgy French accents so far, it would be great if you could tap follow and give us that five-star rating. It really helps us out a lot. But of course, if you want the full Pop Pass Pod experience, feel free to head over and follow us on Instagram, on Twitter, and even Facebook too. Thanks so much for joining us once again. Charlie, what have we got coming up in today's episode? Well, we've been treated to another brilliant weekend of Six Nations action. French flair and flamboyance in a five-try rout at Murrayfield. And it's gone straight to Dombrand, and Dombrand reaches out. And England have got the first try of the match. Old and New England collide in a tight encounter at Twickenham. 
to play the whole game in 13 players, you tell me. Yeah, that's correct. Just because he have a red card. Yes, that's correct. So we, we cannot replace one back row with a, with a prop. No. No, you have to bring someone from a front row. Okay, let's go now. And what can you learn from 13 against 15 as Ireland put 50 on Italy? But first, it's been a very interesting week for domestic rugby. Should we start at the headline news, which is that in the Championship, Ealing and Doncaster Knights have been battling it out all season to get that promotion spot into the Premier League. And yet they've been told by the RFU this week that even if they win the Championship they won't be allowed to be promoted. No entry. Banned. No, yeah, banned completely. You're wearing trainers. You're not allowed in this club. Yeah, exactly. This is... I, I don't get it. Well, their, their, main, their main point of contention is that their stadium is too small. They say you need a stadium of at least 10,000. And one. And one. So <laughs> that's, that's actually a very good distinction. It is 10,000 and one. It's really quite demoralising. Imagine playing all season to try and earn your spot in rugby's premier competition in England and then be told, actually because you haven't got enough plastic seats on the side <laughs> you, you, you can't you, you can't play with us you can't you, you can't play with our ball yeah yeah i think you have to add some nuance to it i think there is something about ealing that i don't think it's got the the right accessibility or something yeah so I guess we do have to put a little bit of an asterisk on it and say like okay it, it's not just the seats yeah but still, it's mostly the seats. But it's mostly the seats. That's their point of contention. And I, I agree with you. There is there is some nuance there because it's all about being able to safeguard players and fans properly and appropriately. But then there's a whole summer that they can sort that out. And I think mm. if the RFU really want to grow the game like they always say they do, then surely you should earn some money from getting promoted from the championship to appease those issues. And... You know they can work together with 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 the RFU to make sure they're ready for the Premiership. Mm. Because how are they ever going to have enough money to invest if they don't improve and go into the Premiership and get the money from Premiership and from the TV money and all that? It's a never-ending cycle if they can never go up, but they can never earn enough money to fix what's wrong with them. Mm. It's really really difficult. I'm I'm sure they are fuming these Championship clubs. Yeah, it's just pretty devastating for those kind of for those players who want that shot in the Premiership. And you know. Inevitably, they probably will end up second to last or last, and they, they may or may not get relegated the, the following season. But to have that experience, to put yourself in the shop window for not just mm. clubs higher up the hierarchy, or but also for... for well, I, I guess France have shown that they've been able to pick players from the second division, mm -hmm. bring them through. So I guess just because you're in the second division doesn't mean necessarily you won't have a shot, but it's really unlikely, isn't it? Yeah, no, um, I agree. It's It's... I just think it's it's a real shame and I think we should be growing championship rugby and we should have that that carrot in front of them that they can actually get to the premiership. We sh it shouldn't be ring fence. There needs to be that jeopardy not only for premiership uh, for championship clubs going up to the premiership but also premiership clubs who know that they can't just take a year out and be like oh it's a development year we're going to develop our young players and we know that if we come last and we lose all our games nothing will happen. Exactly. It's really tricky, and I do feel for Ealing and Doncaster. I feel, I feel worse for Doncaster because I think there's like five million people in Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. There's like this big gap for rugby to be yeah to be here, and Doncaster could move to the football ground was keep mode, but now the Eco Power Stadium <laughs> that's got capacity. But then I think there's a rugby league side that plays there already. Okay. I think Doncaster ha are, are quite keen to keep it at their current club because of the clubhouse and the club environment. But also, if they move to the Eco Power Stadium, 
how much the revenue from the ticket sales do they get? I, I, I don't know the answer to this yeah. question, but if it's at your own grounds, you're you're in control of your own destiny. Everything, and that's not just ticket sales. That is, you know, for food, drink, merchandise, like all of that kind of stuff. You don't have to worry about the rent you're paying or the split you're paying to whatever yeah. club you're sharing it with. I wonder what what the arrangement is with London Irish, where they share with Brentford mm. in the Brentford Community Stadium, but. Going back to the the stadium issue, which is obviously the the major point of contention, you have a lot of clubs in the Premiership who are in these massive stadiums that more than fit the 10,000 plus model that the Mm. Premiership wants. Mm. And yet they barely fill it and they barely fill it by like 20, 25%. And it's it's, I'd rather see a packed out 5,000 seat stadium Or, I mean, some Doncaster and Ealing don't have 5,000 seats per se, but mm. a packed out stadium with 5,000 people in it than five, ten to 10,000 people, you know, in a 30,000 seater. Yeah, me too. I mean, the Rec is a brilliant stadium in Bath. I mean, I'm a bit biased anyway, but the Rec is a brilliant stadium because of its size and because of the fact we pack it out week in, week out. Mm. And it's just a way better atmosphere than playing at London Irish or playing against Wasps. So I don't know why the stadium issue is, is so big that they're like, no, you can't come in rather than saying, actually, we're going to work with you to make sure that fans and players are going to be safeguarded. And that is the most important thing. And over time, if you can maintain your quality and stay up in the Premiership, you can invest and reinvest those funds from being in the Premiership to making your stadium more suitable for that that level of rugby. It's a real shame. But it's it's more than a shame, though, isn't it? Like, it feels like something to get angry about, almost. it feels like, what's the point? Like, what is the point? Like, the thing is with looking at football, the football league, or even like the FA Cup, you know you're in a competition that if you get far enough, you could play one of the big boys. Or if you, over a long period of time, keep playing well, keep running your club in the right way, you can get to the Premier League. You know, it might be a pipe dream, but the dream is there. Whereas now it's like, for rugby fans who who support teams in the second division, or even lower than that, it's like, no chance. Yeah, There is still a point, of course there is, but... We all like to, to dare to dream that our club could, could sit at the top table. And if that's not possible, it's really quite a bitter pill to swallow. Yeah, agreed. But anyway, let's return to the Six Nations action, where after the first fallow week of the tournament, the French came back with a bang and remind us why they may well be storming to a first title since 2010. So, final score in the France-Scotland game, 17-36, uh, with France scoring 24 points in the second half alone. An absolute rout. It was a bit of a rout. Um, France's biggest win at Murrayfield since 2004. Goodness me. Fantastic display by Le Bleu, I thought, not just on the pitch, but in the stands as well. I thought the, the French fans were in fine voice yeah, at Murrayfield. They, they love a trip to Edinburgh. <laughs> I can see why. Yeah, I mean, why not? Anthem was sung very well. Oh, yes. Off the back of their second place in the Anthem ranks last week. <laughs> so, they backed it up strongly. But in the game, they also did it as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think it just left me with the question, were France brilliant or were Scotland poor? Are you posing that to me? Well, not really. That's just what I... <laughs> it's a r- rhetorical. It's a rhetorical, but I, I feel like I have an answer to it. Yeah. And I think the boring answer would just be, yeah, it's a bit of both, isn't it? Oh, and that's just paralysing and it's just ultimately always right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail my colours to the mast and say, yeah. Scotland were poor. The Scots have just been showing a worrying, steady decline from the England game in terms of performance. And for me, what's been going wrong is the lack of potency and attack for the Scots, especially when you compare the two games. Now, in the France game on the weekend, 
Scotland had the ball more than France across the 80 minutes, 58% possession. And the Scots ran over 100 metres more with the ball than France did when they had the ball. Scotland made almost double the amount of passes than France, 190 passes to France's 97. Scotland players beat more defenders than French players, and they made France do a humongous amount of tackling, with France completing 306 tackles 306? to Scotland's 136. That, that's the, the most that France have completed in the tournament so far. And Scotland weren't really that ill-disciplined, if you look at the penalty stats either. They conceded 12 penalty to France's 9, which is kind of an average for the tournament. Um, so, yeah, I, I, what I'm saying there is that Scotland had lots of opportunities in terms of they had the ball lots. They they moved the ball around a lot. They beat defenders, but they didn't really do much with it. And so my soundbite for that would be, well, Scotland had the ball more in their possession. But they just didn't use it very well. They were blunt in attack. They didn't have the firepower nor the flair to regularly unlock that French defence. Mm-hmm. And what's worrying for me is contrast that soundbite to what we said in the England game. What did we say in the England game? We said that... Scotland looked dangerous without having the ball much. They looked like they were going to score every time they got the ball. What have I just said in con- in contrast that yeah. they were blunt when they had the ball loads, they couldn't really use it? I mean, if you looked at those stats without looking at the result, I'd be like, oh, well, Scotland probably won that game. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, it's, it's worrying for me. Scotland just really need to pick themselves up and maybe just put this one game to forget about it for a while. And it wasn't all doom and gloom for Scotland, realistically. I mean, Rory Darge was was fantastic, I thought. A great um, debut. Yeah, a former under-20s captain, if you've not known of him before. And John Barkley compared him to Hamish Watson. Interestingly, in the URC, which is the club competition, if you we've used that acronym a, a lot, actually. If you don't know what that is, that's the club competition that used to be the Pro 12. Yeah, I think yeah. so. So in the URC, Darge has made six clean breaks and beaten 22 defenders, which is the highest for any forward in the competition. So certainly one to look out for in the future. So so yeah, there were things to be taken away, but I said I wasn't going to go on the doom and gloom of this section, but I just want to bring it back and just say that if you compare the two back lines from the England game to the Scotland game, there's one player difference. It's Sam Johnson. In terms of how those two backlines compared, in the England game, that backline missed three tackles. In the France game, that backline missed 11 tackles. Hogg missed more tackles than he made in that France game. Wow. So I don't want to be pointing fingers at professional rugby players who can do 10 times better things than I can do. Yeah, but that's what we're here for, Charlie. That is what we're here for. <laughs> so that's that for me is, is what went wrong for Scotland. As we were saying, if you look at the stats, you kind of feel like Scotland should be should have been the, the team that maybe came away from that with not just like a better performance, but pushed France a lot further than they did. Well, I mean, saying that, they were in the game, especially in the first half, and, and they were, I'm sure you're going to mention it, but they were so close to taking the lead. Yeah, yeah, 100%. When Duane van der Moen makes that break, gets it to Chris Harris... And then Chris Harris flings it out wide to Stuart Hogg. Scotland are losing a 12-10 at this point. Hogg goes over, conversion, 17-12. You go into halftime with a five-point lead. Scoreboard pressure all on France. They've got to come out at Murrayfield in the second half and assert their authority once again. And that moment from Chris Harris and Stuart Hogg, it's a combination of both of them. I'm not going to blame Stuart yeah. Hogg. There was a three-on-one. He had Ali Price to his left and... He just decided to fling the miracle ball out wide. I mean, I said it at, at the time, but you would have bet your house on on Hogg to catch that ball. It was excruciating. You could just see it happening. And then as soon as he sort of tips it up into the air, 
your heart sings. Yeah. That was a huge turning point in the game, a momentum shift. And France then go up and score right before half time. And where it could have been 17 12, it was now 19 10 to France. At a huge switch in momentum that really set the tone for the second half when France go out and score within the first two minutes. Yeah, 100%. But I mean, ultimately, I do think we have to give a lot of credit to France. They were brilliant. Yes. Um, they got the biggest pack in the tournament. And then the hands that were produced in that game. I mean, there's that, for me, it's that 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 moment is the Cyril by pass into Mofana to score. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they were just so good all, all over the they park. They epitomise joué joué, <laughs> don't they? They just they just play on and play on, you know. Those offloading all the time. They remind me of a, of an all black side at, at, at some points in that game. Hundred percent, yeah. And it was just that they they their try just after half time. The, the I think it was a Dante try. They were lucky with the bounce in a way, but you, you you do make your own luck. You do, you do. And I think we was, I was saying about how um, that pack were really good at sort of playing just in in the loose. Greggy Oldreet, for me, showed that why he's been one of the best players for France, just sort of an unsung hero. He's He's got the top carries so far in the championship, and he's also top for offloads. And I think that's a player that we're not seeing... I'm not seeing him do that all the time, for example. like He doesn't produce maybe one moment of real flair, but it just shows that even he, who is maybe not hitting the headlines as, as one of their best players still is just, you know, topping those, those few. He's, he's a Sergio Busquets, you know, you don't, (laughs) if you really take notice, you can see how good he is, but he does sort of pass you by if you're not watching. Yeah. Yeah. He is also joint third on turnovers. So yeah, as I said, Scotland have got Italy next. So hopefully Gregor Townsend's men can get back to winning ways. Mm -hmm, I really hope so. I mean, I think it's, it's a nice penultimate round of fixtures for them. And then they go to Ireland and have a huge test there, but at least they can get back on track, you'd hope anyway, against the Italians and try and end this tournament like they started against England. France will play Wales away at the Principality, which is another big test. But to be honest, I think the performance we just saw from France, I don't really see Wales coming to match them. I can't see anyone standing in France's way at the moment. I mean, Ireland were the team I thought who could do it. And now, I mean, we'll talk about England and Wales next, but... I just don't see a team that can stand in France's way of not only winning the title, but winning the Grand Slam. Right, on to the biggest game of the weekend in terms of sort of domestic rivalry. England against Wales. England came out with a 23-19 win, a win that was looking far more convincing at around sort of just after half-time, up 17-0. But they made hard work of it. I mean, the game really came to life in that second half. I thought the first half was 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 pretty awful. So boring. So boring. So much time. I want to know how much time the ball was in play in that first half. Just felt like it went on for so long, just it at did. scrum time. Yeah, I was going to say, the ref, I think, stifled the game quite a bit. Unfortunately, I think he really didn't allow it to flow and allow sort of an increase in tempo. He didn't like let anyone take any quick taps. Ironically, I think the only quick tap he let um, was scored by Kieran Hardy <laughs> just, right at the end. Just, like, I don't you, want to sound like a salty English fan, but yeah. I feel like that always happens against Wales. Yeah, they, they love a quick tap against us. But the thing is, also with that, 
I'm a big fan of quick taps, but it's like if you're a referee and you set a precedent throughout the game that you're not letting anyone quick tap, and then you let Wales quick tap in the last five minutes, and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa like th- that's really inconsistent. I mean, I prefer it, of course, but you're right, I don't want to sound too bitter. We did win the game in the end. But yeah, I don't think the ref really helped the tempo. But England, once again, got into really good positions in that first half, particularly, but they failed to get over the try line. I mean, there was a moment where Charlie Yules went over and was held up and Liam Williams subsequently got uh, got yellow carded for a bit of a cynical sort of tap on one of the England players' arms as they were trying to pick it up. But yeah, they just got into that red zone so many times and failed to come out with more than three points. Of course, they built that scoreboard pressure. They were up 12-0 at halftime, a really healthy lead. But it could have been so much more. For the dominance they had, it could have been so much more. And especially in that first half, they dominated Wales at the breakdown. I think the referee was was kind to England. I think we got the rub of the green. Not too much. I just think there was there was a slight imbalance at the well, breakdown. Well, yeah, I guess the final few moments where Courtney Laws clearly does a deliberate knock-on. Yeah. That, that to me, just suggests it was more than just a little well, bit. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to talk about karma, but, I mean, last year was whoever was refereeing, I can't remember, Roman Poit or something like that. The, the refereeing decisions in that game were pretty horrific. Yeah, 100%. Um, and cost, cost 14 points for England. So... Swings and roundabouts. I, I think that was that was a minor point at the end. We've talked about it before that I feel like if you're going one-handed, yellow card, and I don't understand why the ref didn't give a yellow card just purely on principle alone. Yeah. Because then uh, we wouldn't even be talking about this. If he gave a yellow card... You couldn't complain, really, could you? It was it was a very small knock-on, but it was deliberate and it, it yeah. interrupted the flow. And yes, they got a penalty from it, but I don't know whether that could have been... A deciding moment. I don't think it could have been, but yeah, we won't know the answer to that. That's true. And and then from a wider perspective, it should never have got to that stage. It should never have got to the stage where England were four points ahead and Wales had the ball. And if they scored a try, they would win the game. It should never have got there. England built up a lead. They got gifted a try at the start of the second half. Their only try in the game. I mean, there was a bit of controversy surrounding that after the game. Wayne Pivak thought the referee should have looked at that line out because Otoje sort of nudges uh, Wales and their lifter, which looking back on the video, he definitely does. But then I think it comes under sort of the dark arts of rugby. Those kind of incidents probably happen in every game across the country and get missed. I don't think it was a glaring error, much like the Reece knock on last year. Mm. So... Sometimes those decisions go against you or for you, but the fact that England were basically gifted a try and they didn't conjure up one on their own suggests a lot about where this England attack are. But Wales, they came back into the game and like we always say, and like we've kind of learned throughout doing this podcast, you just can't write them off. No, no. You can't write them off wherever you are. I mean, I was sitting very comfortably at 17-0 and I was looking at it thinking, wow, we really push on here. We could put maybe maybe 25-30 on, on this side. But... They proved us wrong yet again. And it's the second time in this tournament, actually, that England's opposition have made more clean breaks and beaten more defenders than them. Obviously, Scotland game. That was not the Italy game. (laughs) Um, But the fact that it was taken to the last play is ridiculous. And England really need to look at themselves to work out why they let Wales back and why they couldn't capitalise on all the momentum they had at about 45 minutes in when Don Brandt goes over. If they do that to a side, no disrespect to Wales, if they do that to a side that's that's better than Wales, or if they did it at the Principality, you know, you're looking at a pretty embarrassing loss on your hands. Well, this is this is it, because, I mean, their next games are Ireland and then France. 
The biggest tests are yeah. yet to come. Mm-hmm. And as you said, so far, we've not seen anywhere close to what I would consider to be the best from England. No. And that's not me saying that optimistically, like, oh, we've got so much more to come. I, I honestly yeah. don't think we have anything left to give. And it's more a case of, oh, God, <laughs> this could get ugly. It could. It could. It's, it's worrying. I mean, I don't want to sound negative again, but the first question I had after the game was, are England actually improving? When was the last time they convincingly beat a team? You look back, they, they won this weekend, wasn't very convincing. Beat Italy, yeah, they lose to Scotland. They beat South Africa, which was a great, great win, but we were dominated for large parts of the game. It was a smash and grab kind of performance. We beat Australia, the scoreline flattered us a bit right at the end when, we, when Jamie Blamire went over. So, if I'm looking back at it, I'm not sure there's a time we've convincingly beat a team since the 2019 semi-final against New Zealand. Yeah. I don't want to sound dramatic. In, that was in my mind as well. Yeah. But I think genuinely, that's the last time England have put in a full 80-minute performance. And in the Six Nations so far, they haven't even put in a full one-half performance, really. Yes, this week, they were 12-0 up at half-time. But we didn't play very well. It was very frustrating to watch because we botched so many opportunities to score more points. I mean, as you said, we were gifted a try and that was it. So yeah. we weren't going to produce anything else from that game. I, I really don't think. Exactly. And that's the difficult thing. I think the forwards are slowly getting the right balance. Although the scrum was just off in some points in the game. It was really frustrating to see England when Liam Williams got simbined, go for a scrum, try and assert their dominance and then concede a penalty. I mean, it's just not what you want. Mm. I would really like to see Laws move, maybe moved into the second row and Alfie Barbary or maybe Sam Sibbins given a chance in the back row just to give a little bit more dynamism. Yeah. I mean, it takes out Charlie Yules, who I think is a good player and I don't think he played badly, but I would just like to see maybe one more back rower who can really try and change the game or, or make a few more line breaks. I think, however, it's when we go to the backs when the problems start to appear. Beyond maybe Marcus Smith and Freddie Stewart, who I think are doing what is required of them quite well. Especially for such young players. Exactly. I mean, this is a young England side. We had Harry Randall playing. We had we have Joe Marchand out on the wing. Max Malins is still a pretty young player, although I, for some reason, always think he's like 30 plus, <laughs> but he's like 24. Um, so, But I just think we need that point of difference on one of the wings. You saw how well Alex Cuthbert played, where he beat defenders, he made loads of metres. He just, he was dangerous throughout the game, but... Apart from the odd defensive turnover from Jack Knoll or high ball take from Max Malins, they didn't really produce much. And is it time to bring in someone a bit more exciting? Is it time to bring in an Ollie Hassel Collins or an Adam Rabwan? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it, I mean, I, the, I don't know if that's that doesn't sound too uncontroversial though. Like, no realistically, the backline that Eddie Jones put out for that game, I did not feel excited for. That is, well, as soon as Manu was out, yeah. definitely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're right. When Manu was announced, I felt really excited. Exactly. But yeah, there's, I don't think, it's not uncontroversial. Like, I'm looking at that, that England side and just thinking like, okay, yeah, sure. That, I mean, That's a team. <laughs> exactly. We've lost, you know, Anthony Watson to injury, long-term injury. He would be in this side. 100%. He's, he is a world-class player. Unbelievable. And he he has the potential to make line breaks. And 
and be that point of difference. Johnny May for years has been that guy. Unfortunately, I think he's kind of fallen off a little bit recently. I yeah. know he's injured as well, but I don't think he's the same player that he was around 2019. There was that France game where he literally get, got us back into it with a yes. chicken chase. Yes. And that Johnny May, I don't think we'll see play ever again for England. No, I'm I mean, not sure. Alex Cuthbert has given us some hope. He's a guy who was sort of out of that Welsh squad. Yeah. And he was fantastic. I, I just think we need to add that point of difference somewhere and I think the wings is where that could happen I don't think it will happen unfortunately because we've got as you said the two hardest tests to come I'd be very surprised if Eddie Jones makes any changes to that team which is a shame but I won't be complaining if we beat Ireland in a couple weeks time (laughs) so we haven't really seen one game where England have played really well I really hope it's in the next couple of weeks but as I said above all they just need to be more clinical in that red zone and score more tries what about Wales what do you think their next test is against France on a Friday, by the way. Friday Night Light, I the Principality. I love this game. How do you fancy their chances against a pretty, well, <laughs> as we said, exciting French team? Yeah, never write Wales off. We've also said that. So how do we, <laughs> how do we weigh this up? I think the fact that it's at home at the Principality, I think it's going to be closer than people think. Tulupa Falatau's come back into this Welsh side. Yeah, he, he, he was awesome. So I, I think actually that England game was a real um, masterclass in how to play eight. Don Brandt was excellent mm-hmm. and Falatau was excellent. Yeah, they, they, he, he's a really good addition for a Welsh side that's lacking in that experience. And I mean, I, I hope Wales give France a stern test because Ireland kind of did and it was close, but I think... France still didn't look like they were tested too much. And although Wales at this moment in time are a worse team than Ireland, I think being at the Principality, it's a Friday night. You know, will it get to the French? Will they feel that pressure there? The penultimate round of the Six Nations, they're so close to winning the championship to potentially playing England for the Grand Slam. Mm. Will the pressure get to them? Will someone get a red card? And <laughs> no, don't say that. <laughs> Who knows? I, I, look, I, I wouldn't wish that game to go to a 15 versus 14 scenario, but I do think it's going to be really interesting. And again, we should not write Wales off because when they're at home, they could produce something special. And the final game of the weekend, an absolute rout. Huge. Ireland, Italy, 57-6. Goodness me, a 51-point margin. And last week we thought, yeah, Ireland by 20 maybe. I mean, we would never have predicted that. Yeah, I know, I know. I think that actually would have been offensive to Italy if we'd gone down and said 50-point margin to to Ireland. I saw some predictions saying Ireland by 40, but, you know, they almost should have scored more because of the situation. I mean, just to recap what happened for those those of you who've maybe forgotten... Italy had their first choice hooker removed from the game through injury and uh, their replacement hooker came on and subsequently got a red card. Fiverr. Fiverr. I know his name because he was once upon a time my super sub. For fancy. For fancy. (laughs) And I changed him this week and thank God I did because I would have got zero points, if not minus points. Uh, And yeah, so he, he got sent off and the game continued as normal and then we got to the next scrum in the game and I feel really bad for the Georgian referee in charge because it was one of his first internationals. The scrum started and he mentioned to the Italian players that they've had to remove another player from their forward pack and go to uncontested scrums. Now that meant the Italians, although down to 14 through the red card, 
now were forced to go down to 13 players for the remainder of the game. And there were 60 minutes to go at this point. And a lot of the Italian players and Irish players, I think, were pretty bemused by this, although this is a common law in rugby. And not to get too bogged down in it, basically it's law 3.2. Nice. This week I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the law you, book. Have you downloaded the law book? No, not yet. Okay, I'm, you're I'm, an amateur. I think I've still got it on my laptop. Have you? So. Well, that says a lot about you, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, the law 3.2 says, if a front row player is sent off and the team cannot continue with contested scrums with players already on the field because... Italy didn't have a replacement hooker, then the team nominates another player to leave the playing area to enable an available front row player to come on. To translate that jargon, as I said, basically they had to remove another forward in order to go to uncontested scrums. It meant it was 15 against 13. It's a crazy, crazy law, and everyone was really annoyed by it. Loads of people on Twitter slating it, saying it needs to change. And it was really frustrating because it changed the game. It meant that Ireland, they were always going to win the game, but it just turned it into a bit of a farce. The rule is in place, basically, to stop teams who are getting destroyed at the scrum from maybe only naming one hooker in their starting 23 and then taking him off as a replacement and then saying, oh, we'll go to uncontested. He's he's injured. Yeah, he's injured. We'll go to uncontested scrums and then it completely negates the set piece. So the reason the rule is in place is for a right reason, but... In this very, very unique scenario, it was clearly the wrong one. And context is really important, and maybe context should be looked at in a future amendment to this law. I 100% agree. I like the use of amendment. Sounds like we're going to be putting it through the House of Representatives and the Senate or something like that. We're going to be amending the Constitution. Well, we could. Well, rugby might be, <laughs> might be interested to hear our opinions on this. Um, Can I just go back to the, the poor referee? This yeah. was, the, as you said, the first Georgian and the first tier two union official to referee in the Six Nations Championship. This was a fantastic moment mm-hmm. for world rugby. And yet this guy had the worst possible start, really, of having to... He was just... I don't think the crowd got on him and said, like, ah, oh, you know, got it went against him. But at the same time, poor bloke, he's basically just having to go to the back of his mind and be like, right, okay, so the rule says that now he's got to go yeah. off. And I mean, also, you had all the players being like, what? We don't have to do that. Surely not. And you must maybe doubt yourself a little bit when you've got all these players being like, no, like, let's not do that rule. But he was so unfortunate. It was like, you can't shoot the messenger because all he was doing was he was ruling by the laws that he has to abide by. And it was really unfortunate for him because it, it made him look like the bad guy. But at the same time, another note to say why rugby refereeing, I think, is so good because we could hear all of that. Yes. If that was in a football game, now, this wouldn't happen. But let's say the goalkeeper gets... I don't know, injured and or red card and they don't have another goalkeeper on. And it's supposedly unsafe for a goalkeeper to go in, <laughs> that which would never happen. But at the same time, like, we wouldn't be able to hear that conversation because they're not mic'd up. Well, they are mic'd up or we can't hear them. I think it's great with rugby that we were able to, yes, that rule was confusing. And yes, we think that it was double jeopardy and it shouldn't exist. But in terms of clarity, we were able to hear what was going on. Now... I've got a question for you. Yeah. If that happened to Ireland, so let's say, you know, the full situation happens Mm -hmm. and Ireland are down to 13 men, uncontested scrums, what do you think the result would have been? Wow. Uh, I think Ireland still win. Do you? Because I think that the thing is with with Italy is, are they streetwise enough to completely change their game plan to suit playing against 13 men? Mm-hmm. 
But I think Ireland is streetwise enough to be like, we've got 13 men, this is how we're going to change our system. I, I just think there are teams who are clearly at different levels and would be able to cope with the situation differently. And I think Ireland would still would still scrape the win. I don't think they, they, would, they would dominate and maybe, you know, not score four tries. But I still think they win. I, I'm really torn. Really? Because that, that is the sensible answer. <laughs> but there is this little part of me that thinks, OK, yeah, I'm really angry about this rule and we think it should change that there's not this double jeopardy. But that would be really exciting. And I think Italy could certainly push them close with 13 men. I don't think they would have won. But there's a small part of me that does. Yeah. And it's just like, it's, it's sort of, it's getting to me. It's like, ah, oh, I do really hate this rule. But it could be really exciting. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. It could be great. I mean, imagine if, if if they introduced a power play where for 10 minutes, or no, for maybe 20 minutes of the game, you can only play with 13 players and you have to play against 15. It's, it's, it's an Italy-only card. Yeah. They can just whip out it's that like pocket. Go into the, in the chance card, the community chest, and flip, you must play with 13 players for the next 20 minutes. And, uh, and, we'll and see your crowd's many- not allowed to sing as yeah. well. <laughs> Must say stay silent yeah. so that there's no home advantage as well. God, imagine that. It turns it. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's it. It was really, really tough on Italy, and it just turned the game into a bit like. I, mean, I didn't really enjoy the game that much. I mean, I think we, we stopped watching. We stopped watching. We turned over to the football, didn't we? So it was just like as much as I like seeing lots of tries, it just seemed pretty pointless. It was like we've seen that um, that Simpsons meme where it's like, stop, stop, he's dead already. <laughs> It was exactly like that. I'd love to be able to help you out there, but I haven't. No, you seen haven't it. seen it. You haven't seen it. He's just getting. <laughs> I won't explain it anymore. Um, it still makes sense, but yeah, it was just. It just felt a bit, bit bad for them, and also like uh, Michael Lowry, really exciting fullback, who I mentioned in the first episode uh, nice. in our big preview, finally got his debut. He scored two. I was hoping to get a hat trick so that I could rewind us back to the I first mean, you, episode. Uh, uh, you, you, yeah, but you didn't put in in your fantasy team, did you? No, this is what's really quite embarrassing. Ooh. I backed him on the pod, but then I didn't put him in the fantasy team. And actually, he would have got me way more points than than James Lowe and uh, Matt Hansen. But still, he played well. I mean, again, you have to put a massive caveat on that and say, well, yes, he did really well on his debut, but he was playing against 13 man Italy. So how much can you gauge from that? I've got, of course, Ireland have to get back to it in a couple of weeks' time when they play England at Twickenham. And despite England's fragility. I think, you know, that they're not quite there yet. It will still be a big test for Ireland. There's no doubt. And it's I mean, not going to be easy. Head to head, if Lowry plays and Stuart plays, high ball contests, I think if England can work their game in a way that they yeah. are really putting pressure on Lowry, maybe not Stuart versus Lowry, because, you know, that's a little bit hard to, to yeah. piece together in a rugby game. But still, when you've got a slightly smaller stature man and you've got England's one of England's biggest weapons with yeah. with Stuart. I mean, you see how he destroyed Faletau when he, when he yeah, caught a high ball. I'm really weekend. interested to see maybe how that one could play out if he's played. But we're really interesting to see for Ireland if they can go to Twickenham and win, despite the fact that the championship kind of well, is out of their hands now unless someone beats France they can still take these test matches and if they can go to Wickham and win, it's a big statement of intent going into next year. I mean, Sexton's going to be, I think, back for that yes. game. Yes, I mean, he played He played this weekend and so he'll be ready to go. I just think Ireland with Sexton are a different beast, obviously. Yeah. It goes without saying. Carberry's done really well, I think, considering. But mm. this Ireland team were just sort of shot when they were really getting into their stride. And now they're facing an England side that we were just saying 
maybe aren't as not not just efficient but just don't have the firepower to really put pressure exactly on these top teams i don't think that they're they're halfway through their development and i think they will inevitably get better but maybe ireland at twickenham a couple weeks time maybe a bit too early for them but we'll see So that's all for today. Of course, we now have another Six Nations Fallow Week this weekend, but that doesn't mean there's no rugby action at all. Charlie, what do we have in store? Well, Friday Night Lights, 7.45, Harlequins versus Newcastle. And then on Saturday, two massive fixtures. Yeah. One for us, Bath Boys, West Country Derby, Bath Bristol, Saturday, three o'clock kickoff at the wreck. If you're going to that one, I am so jealous. <laughs> but if not, it's on this new thing called Premiership Rugby TV. Yes, very, very new. It started on last weekend. You pay a fiver to watch a game or you pay £6 to be able to see all the games that aren't on BT Sport. I think it's quite a nice new development to make Premiership Rugby available. Although you still have to pay, it's now available to watch and you don't have to listen to it on the radio if your team's not on BT. Yeah, I'm really excited by that. I think we'll be tuning into it through no, definitely. Premiership Rugby TV. Exactly. Sounds like we should be sponsored by them. Oh, well, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and then on BT Sport is... Uh, Admittedly, a bigger clash. Sarri's Leicester also at three on Saturday. First v second. So, yeah, that is... Saturday is looking like a tasty game of rugby if you're wanting to get some Gallagher Premiership involved. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's what's coming up on the weekend. Thanks once again for listening to us today. And if you enjoyed it, make sure to go and follow the podcast on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at the Pop Pass Pod. If you're feeling extra nice, please give us a five-star rating, please, on wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps us out a lot. But in the meantime, of course, we'll be back next week to preview the penultimate round of the Six Nations. So we'll see you then. This is the Pop Pass Podcast with me, Freddie. And me, Charlie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>